should open to the book of Romans, I mean Ephesians. <laughs> Starting a new book. The book of Ephesians is an exciting study. As we had studied through the first eight chapters of the book of Romans over the past couple of years, we've discovered the great doctrine of salvation. And it's at the end of Romans, Ephesians really picks up. And not just talks about the doctrine of salvation, but begins to picture for us from God's perspective the riches of salvation. The richness of what God has done. The riches and the richness of the blessings of being children of God. The entire book of Ephesians is written to that end. There are, there are major themes running through the book. But the overarching theme speaks to that issue of the richness of being a child of God and being part of the church, the family of Christ. And we'll be looking at that as we work our way through the book. It's an exciting study, and I certainly hope that it proves to be a blessing to you and an encouragement to you in your life. As I was preparing these past couple of weeks and reading and thinking through, uh, the book, it had been my goal to uh, address the first 14 verses with you this morning. However, as I began in, in earnest, we're going to cover three verses today. And the three verses you'll see are rich. We like to, it, it's often our custom to, to hurry through the introductions, to, to get to the meat, but right in the very beginning we're going to see that there's great rich meet for us in the very verse three, first three verses, the very beginning of this letter. And so we're not going to hurry through it. We're going to stay there. We're going to soak on it. We're going to think about it. We're going to enjoy, and we're going to take in what God has to say to us, even in the very introduction of this letter. And so, again, I, uh, it's my hope and prayer that it would be a blessing to you, as it has been to me to this point. Paul says... In the very first verse, he introduces himself, as he does in all of his letters, to all the churches. And he uses a number of phrases to describe himself. If you remember, when we started the book of Romans, in the first verse of the book of Romans, Paul says in, in the introduction, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. So he identifies himself. He tells us who he is. He's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. And so also here in Ephesians, as he introduces himself, we know his name, Paul. And he calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He gives us insight into who he is. He gives the church insight into who he is. And that is instructive for us. There are two great areas in our life that we struggle with, generally speaking. First of all, who are we? Our identity. And where do we gain our sense of identity from? I had a lovely discussion last night with a precious saint in our church, a precious sister. She's here with us this morning. And she works in the children's church. And, and as we talked before the service last night, she was sharing with me how for a long time she was gaining her sense of identity of who she was from her work. She worked in the entertainment industry and in design and fashion and so forth. And that can be very... Uh, uh, very interesting. It can be very, um, uh, uh, I want to say, fascinating to work in that in that area, in that arena. And uh, 
as she shared with me, in, in, in just this past year, she made a commitment to serve the Lord in the children's church. And she's a single woman, growing and maturing in Christ. She began to think about, who is she? Who am I? What do I do? Where am I getting my identity from? And then she began to just only recently understand as she's been giving her life in service to Christ that her identity really comes from him and what he thinks about her. And she was talking to me and sharing that as, as she would encounter people when she wasn't doing the fashion work and the design work and people would come to her and, and they would say, well, oh, Lynn, what are you doing? She says, well, I'm working as a waitress now. You know, say, well, that wasn't real fascinating, so they didn't want to really get in depth with her. But when they would come and say, what are you doing? And she says, well, I'm designing a new set or new costumes. they say, oh, how interesting. And they wanted to spend time and talk to her. You see how easy it is for us to gain our sense of worth and identity from what we do? And how very often it's from a worldly perspective. And we have a tension in us. A tension in us. But Paul, right off the bat, describes himself not as the tent maker, not as a lawyer, not as a Pharisee. How does he describe himself? As a messenger. A messenger of who? Christ Jesus, by the will of God. That's instructive for us. How do we see ourselves? We see ourselves as, as an engineer. I mean, when people, I got this, this little girl uh, last night in the service. I went up to her and I said, hi, my name is Zach. What's your name? And she said, Connie. This is Bill. And uh, I said, Connie, what do you do? She said, oh, I'm a model. I said, wonderful. Little girl this morning at 930 service. I said, what's your name? She said, Cindy. I said, Cindy, what do you do? She said, I sell insurance. I said, wonderful. I asked both girls, I said, are you Christians? Yes. And I said, how would it be if when someone asked you what you do, if you said, I'm a minister, I'm a messenger, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh. <laughs> now, the insurance girl, you know, she said, oh, I mean, I can just see my prospects and my clients, you know, <laughs> think I'm a royal cuckoo. But see, the point is, who are we? Who are we? Where are we getting our identity from? Do we, are, are we gaining it from our relationship with him and who he says we are? Is that paramount? Or are we gaining it from what the world says we are or what we think we ought to be because of what the world is? And I think, if you'll agree with me, that most of us would be very, very hard-pressed as we introduce ourselves to other people. As we say... My name is Zach. What's your name? And they tell us. And then, and then uh, uh, they ask us, what do you do? And we say, well, I'm a minister. They say, oh, how interesting. I, tell people, I don't tell people I'm a minister. I tell people I'm a teacher. They say, oh, that's nice. Or better yet, I tell them I counsel people. Sometimes I think that's not too wise because right away I get lots of questions and problems. <laughs> But the point is, how do you view yourself? Do you view yourself as a servant of Christ Jesus? As a messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is that the paramount thing in your life? You say, well, yeah, but I'm not a vocational minister. You see, that's your job. No, no, the Bible says we're all ministers. Do you know that? How many knew that? How many knew 
raise your hand, that you knew that you were a minister. That's how God looks at you. That's your real vocation. Oh, yes, you may sell real estate on the side to pay the rent. But the real vocation is you have been set apart by the will of God to share the gospel. Not just Paul's job, not just my job. It's all of ours. And unless we begin to see ourselves that way and accept that role, accept that, that, that calling, we're going to have a tension in our life that is very, very frustrating. So right off the bat, he tells us who he is and what he's been called. Now, he says, by the will of God. The church didn't call Paul. In fact, they didn't want him around because he was persecuting the church so miserably. Paul didn't call Paul. He didn't appoint himself. It's by the will of God. And if you look over in Galatians, in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says there to us, he says, I was set apart by God from my mother's womb to preach the gospel. I mean, he understood that God had a plan even before eternity for his life, and only now, later in his life, does he look back with 20-20 hindsight and say, oh my, I see what God was doing. And he can say, God has set me apart. Beloved, God has set you and I apart as messengers. He, indeed, he goes on in, in, in the next part of verse 1, he says this, and he addresses the saints. He addresses the church. He says, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And again, he tells us something about who we are. He gives us a sense of, of our identity. You view yourself as a saint? How many would address themselves or would look at themselves and say, I'm a saint? Y'all ought to. You know, yeah, but I know myself. I mean, I, look, I know how I am. It's hard for me to say I'm a saint. But you are. You are. Think about that. Think about that. Saint David. Isn't that beautiful? Saint Mark over here. Isn't that wonderful? Saint Zach. <laughs> That's a nice ring to it. I like that. <laughs> when you begin to look at yourself that way, you're put in a position where you actually have to begin to live that out, don't you? When you're beginning to claim that, you've got to begin to live it out. God looks at us as saints. He looks at us as saints. Paul addresses us as saints. He doesn't address us as sinners. Though we still sin, he addresses us as saints. That word saint comes from the root word in the Greek, which means set apart. Very literally, separated. What do you mean set apart, separate? Separated from the world and separated to God. Israel was separated out of the world. God said in Exodus, though the whole earth is mine, everything is mine. I claim you as my special possession, a people holy to me. And Peter echoes the same sentiment in his epistle when he speaks of the church, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, royal priesthood, separated to God. That's what we are. We're separated people. 
And indeed, Jesus says the same thing, doesn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount? Doesn't he say you should be salt and light? You're to be in the world, but not of it. Paul echoes that same sentiment in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And he says, he says, no longer be conformed to the pattern of the world. And beloved, when we have an understanding of who we are, we'll find ourselves less and less and less being conformed to the pattern of the world. We're not going to be squeezed into the world's mold any longer. We'll indeed begin to experience what it means to be separated out. Saints. A saint is a separated one. A saint is also part of the faithful. You can't be a Christian and a saint without being separated. And being separated also means that you're a person who is part of the faithful. That word faithful has two meanings. First, it simply means full of faith. Again, you can't be a Christian without subscribing to a certain set of beliefs, right? We believe certain things. The Bible puts them forth. They're called basic doctrines. Jesus Christ is Lord. He died for our sins, rose again, ascended to heaven. So we have basic doctrines that we believe, we subscribe to, and we're full of faith about those doctrines. But it's not only faithful in the sense of full of faith about the doctrines, we're faithful also to what we believe. I mean, we live it out. And you see that in the life of of Christians who, uh, though they may struggle over some issues, they are faithful to what they believe and faithful to live it out to the faithful. And this is, this is our identity. We are the faithful. We are saints. So Paul tells us who we are. He gives us insight into God's thinking about us. And then he tells us why. Why we are who we are. Why we are what we are. It's because, and here's the third phrase that he uses to describe the church, we are in Christ. We are in Christ. That is a mystery. That is one of the great mysteries of the Bible. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, it's, just, it's almost like being in the building. I mean, we're inside the building, right? We're part of, in a sense, the building now. Now, we can leave this building, but you can't leave Christ. When you're in Christ, you belong to Christ. You are joined to him. You're joined to his body. You're united with him. Much as my arm is joined and united to this body and part of this body. My arm is in the body. And indeed, Paul uses the metaphor in three different, four different places in the New Testament. He uses the metaphor of a body. He says the church is, is like a body. The church, in fact, is the body, and it's the body of Christ. Christ is the head. And every member of the church is part of the body. The question for us as the body of Christ, are we portraying to the world as we live out the faith? Are we portraying to the world a disfigured or a um, crippled Christ? Or are we portraying to the world a powerful Christ? We're the body. When Jesus was here the first time, he lived in one body. He was located in one physical body. And now by the Spirit, he's located in all of the body. Every one of us. So we're in Christ. Inseparably, we are part of him. It is an astounding mystery of how that can be. But that's who we are. That's how God views us. Do you view yourself as being in Christ? You know, the early church 
had a profound effect on the pagan world in which they lived. Profound effect. Those first century people tremendously impacted the Roman Empire, tremendously impacted the culture around them. How does the world view us? Do they view us as different people? Do they view us as separated people? Do people come, do they know of you around your workplace? Do they know that you're a Christian? Do they know that you're different? And and when they're in trouble, do they come to you? Do they come to you because they know that you have something different and special? You're the possessor of something that's intangible to them that they don't have. And they want, but they've not been willing to make the decision that you've made. Do they come to you? Do they view you that way? Are you presenting to them the picture of one who is indeed a saint? Not self-righteous, not pious, but a person who is separated, a person who can be in the world, but not of it. A person who can function and function well and do an excellent job and yet still stand for something that's over and above what we're doing in this temporal plane. Do you, do, you, do you get what I'm saying? And, and that won't happen, beloved, unless we begin to really understand who we are. It's got to go from here down into here. I mean, that's the, the proverbial trip it's got to make, right? It's got to be so real to us. Our identity has to be such that, like Lynn, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm learning who I am in Christ. I'm learning what it means to trust him and to abandon myself. I'm learning to gain my sense of identity from him and not from the world around me. That I can begin to move in this world, as the psalmist said, with confidence, knowing that he is my shelter. Oh, this is powerful. Am I, am I the faithful? Yes. That's how God looks at us. In Christ. Now he goes on and he says this next thing in verse 2. He says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's introduced himself. He's greeted them. And now he prays for them. He pronounces a blessing upon them. He identifies for us what we need the most. Think about this. This is so simple and yet it is so profound. What do we long for the most in our relationships? Think about this. Don't we long for acceptance? Oh, man, we want the home. We want the church. We want these precious institutions. Don't we want them to be a place, a refuge for imperfection? We want them to be a place of grace, don't we? So when we come to the church, oh, we want, we want to just be accepted. We want to be loved. I mean, even if we've fallen short, even in the face of our imperfections, we want people to accept us. That's what Paul says. Grace and peace to you from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have it without Christ. And incidentally, if you read these verses right in a row, in every single verse, Jesus Christ is prominently mentioned. He's the focus of Christianity. You cannot be a Christian without Jesus Christ. If you believe in God, you, can't, you, you won't be believing in the God of the Bible unless you also believe in Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. He is the God of the Bible. But we want and need grace. We need acceptance. But the, the, the paramount acceptance we need is from God. So he says, 
grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God accepts you just the way you are. Isn't that glorious? Think about this for a moment. Grace, unmerited favor. In other words, you don't deserve it. You know you failed, you know you're miserable, you know you've fallen short, but you still want to be accepted. Warts and all. God does that. Grace is the beginning point for our faith. You say, well, how do you know that? Why do you say that? Over in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 8, Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he goes on to say, and the faith is not yours. That too is a gift from God. Grace is the beginning point of faith. Without grace, we could not believe. It's by God's grace that he touches our hearts like he did to Lydia. He opened Lydia's heart so that she could hear what Paul had to say. Acts chapter 17. It's by grace that we can even believe. And then believing leads to peace, the other thing that we need so desperately. Peace. Peace doesn't mean just the absence of conflict. And for some of us, that's all we'll settle for. You know, just give me some peace. Yeah. Just give me a few moments of peace. No conflict, no frustrations. It means much more than that. That word peace, the very thought, the very concept he's talking about, means reconciliation after conflict. It's a much richer thought. Not just the absence of conflict, but reconciliation. That's what this book's all about. Do you know that? You know the major theme of this book is the theme of reconciliation? Reconciliation of relationships and grace. Those are the two major themes of this book. God's grace and reconciliation. Peace. Do you remember in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're not enemies anymore. God's not mad at us. He's not going to send us to hell. He doesn't hold anything against us anymore. Ever. It's all been taken care of on the cross. The things that we need the most, acceptance from God and the knowledge that we have peace with him. We are at peace with God. Are the two paramount things we need in our life. And Paul wishes those. He prays those in the very opening verses of this letter. And beloved, you and I, as we embrace God's grace, we can have confidence that we have peace with him by faith. And we have peace with him throughout eternity. Sadly, however, I think that the, a lot of people in the church today have a very shallow and inadequate view of God's grace. And they have a shallow and inadequate view of God's grace because they have a shallow and inadequate view of sin. What has happened to man? What man's dilemma and problem is? Sin is not just some minor inconvenience. It's not just some little thing that bugs us. It is deeply ingrained in us. And when you understand the extent of it, you begin to understand the extent and the wonder of God's grace. When that reconciliation, when that relationship is reconciled between me and God, and when I grasp it, when I really sense it, when I really experience 
the peace between God and I when I can rest in that then guess what? Then the conflict within myself, there can be reconciliation there. This relationship, so many of us don't like ourselves. And the reason I know that is because we won't look in there. And when we look in, we go, yuck! We find ourselves at conflict. But God wants to heal that conflict. And that conflict with myself cannot be healed unless this relationship first is healed. That's why he says grace and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, first. Then the effects of the healing of that relationship begin to take root in my life, and I begin to be at peace with myself. It's okay to be me. And it's okay to walk in this life. It's okay that I can serve God. And it's okay. I don't have to be frustrated with myself. Oh, I still get frustrated with myself. But I'm accepted, and I, and I can accept me. I'm, not, I'm talking about me, not my sinful behavior. There's a difference. The difference between accepting yourself and accepting your sinful behavior. You, you put off the sinful behavior. And then as I come to grips with me, and as I, as I find there's a, a peace with me, then and only then am I set free to be at peace with you. Do you know that? You ever watch people who are in conflict with themselves? They're in conflict with themselves, and they're in conflict with everybody around them. Because they're not at peace. And the reason they're not at peace is because they're not at peace with him. Now, beloved, this is all by faith. It starts by faith. And faith comes from God's grace. That's why you've got to embrace his grace. Because then the faith begins to mature, and you begin to know his peace. Critical, huh? See why Paul starts it off? Isn't this rich? Right from the get-go. He prays for us that we would know the peace, the grace, and the peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So important. So important. He's told us who we are and what we are. He's told us why. He's told us what we can enjoy, indeed should enjoy, and should, indeed should seek to enjoy, grace and peace. And then the next verse, verse 3, he breaks forth in praise. He breaks forth in praise. I mean, it's inevitable. When you meditate and think on these things and you're taken by them, all you can do is say, praise you, Lord. It doesn't, it's not a perfunctory exercise. It's from your heart, oh God, who you are. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We worship God. When you grasp these great things, you'll find yourself breaking forth into praise. It's inevitable. You must. You must. Too many times I think that we, we don't take time to worship God first for who He is. We worship Him more for what He does or what we can get out of Him. Think about this. As we grow up and as we mature, you know, we move out of our parents' homes. We move out of the house and we establish our own residence and we, in, in an effort to establish our own sense of identity and independence and so forth. But mom and dad, you know, they're still a refuge. They're still home. They're still home base. 
and young people, and I did this, and many of you, I'm sure, did the same thing. You go back home. I mean, you have your apartment, you have your roommates, you have all, but you go back home, and you walk in the door just like you live there, right? You walk right past mom and dad, right to the refrigerator. <laughs> How much nicer it would be if you knocked before you entered. I mean, you showed the respect, the honor due to your parents. That as you entered, you would, you would go spend time with them. You would sit down and say, you know, it's so nice to be with you. I've missed you. It's so nice to spend time with you. It's so nice to sit and talk with you and enjoy your presence again. And then you go to the refrigerator. <laughs> or the washing machine or you know, some of those basic essentials that we need. But you see, we, when we pray and when we praise God and we worship God, we, we hurry up through the preliminaries and we don't stop and encounter Him and His presence and His character, His nature, who He is. We don't worship Him for His great and wonderful nature. We rush through that to hurry up and get to the request, to the refrigerator. Are you with me? Uh, you find that in your life? If you prayed with us here in the mornings or even in the after, late in the afternoons, we, you know, we pray through the Our Father. And uh, uh, you, you can't hardly even get through it in an hour. We have a six-page outline that we, we use, and we go by that roughly. The whole first page of the six-page outline is devoted, the first page is devoted to hallowing his name. Do you remember when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray? I mean, they saw something different about his life. And, the, and they concluded it came from his relationship through prayer and worship and praise. And so they said, teach us how to pray. And Jesus had prayed this way. And he gave them the outline for prayer, the Our Father. And each, each sentence, each segment is a, is a major outline that opens the door to all kinds of wonderful insights. Well, the very first section, he says this, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. And spend 20, 30 minutes in hallowing his name. Honoring. In the book of Romans, in chapter 1, Paul, in describing the godless, said this, although they knew God, they neither, two things, they neither honored him as God, they didn't worship him, they didn't praise him, nor did they give thanks. And as a result of those two things, giving thanks is an expressing an attitude of, of dependence, not independence. And as a result of those two things not being in their life, he says their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They were empty inside. And so again, we get back to this passage in Ephesians. Paul, in reflecting on who God is, what he's done, he breaks forth in praise. You worship God first for who he is, second for what he's done. That's the order. The order is significant. Too many times we seek the blessing first rather than the blessor. We seek the, the blessing rather than the... God has his proper place in your life. The blessings will flow. Jesus said it. You're worried about all this stuff, what you should eat and what you should wear and so forth. He says, if you just seek me first and seek my righteousness, in other words, honor me, give me my proper place, I'll take care of all that stuff. I'll make it happen. I'll see to it that all of your needs are met. Isn't that glorious? You see how Paul, with this understanding, breaks forth in praise and honors God and says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. And then he goes on and he says in the second part of that verse, who maybe, just might bless us. Is that what it says? What does it say? 
who has blessed us with a few blessings? No. With what? With, with every spiritual blessing. He's blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There is no need. You say, well, how come there's need in my life? You've got to connect with him. Too many times the focus is on us. We pay lip service to him. Too many times we don't go to him. We don't wait on him. Remember the psalmist said, in Psalm 27 we read it, that I had this thought in my mind, I will seek your face. The end of the psalm, the last verse in Psalm 27, it says, wait on the Lord. Beloved, learn how to wait on the Lord in worship and praise. Learn how to wait on the Lord. And the need that you have will be fulfilled. He has already provided in heavenly realms every spiritual blessing. You say, well, yeah, but see, that's spiritual blessing. You don't know, you don't understand what I need here now. The spiritual blessings are more real than earthly temporal blessings. You say, what do you mean? Because the spiritual realm goes on forever. It will never pass away. This is going to pass away. This world is a very, very pale reflection of that which is in the spiritual realm. Understand that. We are spiritual beings first. As a new Christian, I remember always wanting to be blessed materially. And I would do good, or try to do good, because I wanted God to bless me, you know? But guess what? I had a sneaking suspicion back here in my mind. I always had this suspicion that the blessings weren't just going to be material, that the blessings predominantly were spiritual. I was disappointed about that. That showed my immaturity. But as I began to grow and mature, I began to seek the spiritual blessings and praise Him for them because I began to understand that the spiritual blessings are the real ones that last and they impact this world. They impact my temporal life in a profound, powerful way. And so the spiritual blessings are marvelous. Forgiveness, righteousness, power, authority, spiritual gifting, fruit, fellowship, spiritual blessings. Those are just a few. This representative of the, of the inexhaustible mind of God and creativity of God. Seek after the spiritual blessings. They're there. Indeed, Peter says this in his epistle, second epistle. He says, His divine power has provided everything we need for life and godliness. It's all there. You say, well, why aren't I connecting? Why is my life so frustrating? Because, beloved, you're not waiting on him. It's real simple. Real simple. Not easy, but real simple. Spiritual blessings and heavenly realms. Heavenly realms. That's where they are. They're all there. If you're a Christian, you are two people at one in the same time. You live here, but you also live there. And there's a tension in the two. You read about the tension in Galatians chapter 5. 
the struggle between the spirit and the flesh. The spirit is against the flesh, the flesh is against the spirit. You're two people at one and the same time. You have two natures, and those natures are always in conflict. You're a born-again person. Paul writes in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Behold, if you're in Christ, you are a new creature, a brand new creation. The old has passed away. What do you mean the old has passed away? The old man that you were spiritually that was dead to God but alive to sin. That man has died. The old Zach has died, was buried. And when a new Zach was raised to new life, a born-again spiritual person who now is alive to God and dead to sin. Spiritually. I still live in the same old body. I still have this flesh to contend with. But now Paul says in Romans 6, 11, he says, now that you're alive to God and dead to sin, start disciplining this body. Don't let sin reign in this mortal body any longer so that you should obey its evil desires. Don't do it. So I've got this conflict. I have two natures now. I'm no longer just the natural person. I have a natural humanness, but I'm spiritually alive and renewed, brand new. Not only that, I have two existences. I exist here and I exist there. Listen to this. Paul writes in the second chapter of Ephesians, verse 6, he said, when God raised us with Christ... He united us to him, and we are seated with him in heavenly places. Beloved, you and I are in heaven right now. You say, heaven? It doesn't seem like it. (laughs) But that's what he says. Remember, it's by faith. By faith. He doesn't say, we will be. He says, we are seated now in heavenly realms with Christ. If I'm united to him, and he's there, where am I? With him. Because I'm united to him. You say, but I'm here. How can I be there if I'm here? Part of you is here, part of you is there. You say, how can that be? I don't know. It's a mystery. I can't explain it all. Neither can you. That's what Paul says. You have two existences. You've got to live here, but you live here like you're not living here, right? You live here like you're passing through. You live here like you're a tourist, if you will. Your real home is someplace else. And that's where you're already seated spiritually. Your heaven and your home is there. And lastly, you have two outlooks. You have two outlooks. When you became a Christian, didn't you begin to look on the world differently? Huh? Yeah, you didn't have the same outlook anymore. You began to look at things differently. Every now and again, we watch Channel 28 at home. And, you know, they have some nice nature shows and animal programs and stuff. But, you know, Channel 28 is the evolution channel. They're always pushing evolution. And every other word in those little programs is, well, according to the evolutionary model, and blah, 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 you know, according to evolution. And Michael sits there and he watches it and he says, Dad, Dad, let's call him and tell him. <laughs> and I said, I've tried, darling, but they won't, they won't listen. But you see, we begin to look at the world with a whole different outlook. I mean, we have to live in the world We understand what the world is all about, but we're no longer going to conform to the pattern of the world because we see now where the pattern of the world leads people. And we have a whole different outlook. We look differently at the things of this life. And we look differently at spiritual things, don't we? Where before we used to mock spiritual things, right? People would come to you and talk to you about Jesus and you say, Ah, get out of here, you Jesus freak. Don't bug me. Leave me alone. I'll never be one of you. 
I love it when I hear that because I know that person is going to be a Christian. But before you were a Christian, you didn't have the kind of outlook that we have now. Now you just go, wow, look at that. Ooh, but look at this. Ooh, but look at that. Ooh, but look at this. Different outlooks. You're two people at one in the same time. But the predominant arena of our dwelling in our blessings is in heavenly realms. Would you say amen to that? And with that, let's close and pray and prepare our hearts for communion. Father, we love you this morning. We thank you for your abundant grace to us in every way. As we prepare now for communion this morning, Lord, we ask that your spirit would apply the things that we've thought about, we've talked about. As the ancient Israelites would reflect on each year the deliverance from bondage to slavery in Egypt, Father, cause us this morning by your Spirit to reflect on the great deliverance from the bondage of slavery to sin, how you've set us free, how you've made us new creatures, how you've given us a new hope. And Father, how we, we are saints, that you look at us with a whole new perspective, that we're not condemnable. And Lord, even in the face of, of that truth, we know that we sin. And we're profoundly affected by our sin, by our disobediences, small and large. Father, we have the confidence to know, though, that we can come to you. Your word assures us that if we've sinned, we can come and confess our sin to you, that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all the guilt, all the unrighteousness. Lord, we do that this morning. For all of us have sinned and just by the fact that we're not perfect we confess our sin to you this morning our angers small and large our frustrations our disobediences those sins of not only commission but the sins of omission the things that we don't do that we really should be doing forgive us Lord this morning as we bring those things and lay them on the altar and observe as the cleansing blood washes them away. Strengthen us, O oh God, as we go to communion and as we remember Jesus and as we utter these words, thank you, thank you, Lord. We commit our way to you, O oh God, and to the word of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen? Okay, let's prepare for...